This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to another episode of the Human Action Podcast, the show where we focus on books, great books, important books, oftentimes economics books, and try to encourage you to review and read these for yourself. But as you know, occasionally we will wander into something more present. Occasionally we will even wander into short articles or essays. For example, in recent weeks, I believe we went over Rothbard's Left and Right, Prospects for Liberty. We went through Anatomy of the State, which is almost a pamphlet of sorts. And so I occasionally like to take a break from the longer reading and uh, you know, enjoy an essay. And I have long been fascinated by an essay that the late Russell Kirk wrote back in the 80s called Libertarians, Chirping Sectories. And I thought there'd be nobody better to bring on that our great friend, Dr. Bradley Berzer, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with, he teaches at Hillsdale College, where he's a professor of history, but he also holds the Russell Kirk chair at Hillsdale. And I did not know that Mr. Kirk's middle name was Amos, apparently. So Brad, welcome. <laughs> yes. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much, Jeff. I'm always happy to do anything with Mises and especially with you. So thank you. Well, for starters, tell us a little bit about your relationship with Kirk and his work. Sure. So I, I actually, I, I was raised in a pretty, I mean, I'll say strict. It was uh, wonderful, but I was raised in a pretty strict libertarian household. Uh, my mother had been a Goldwater girl. And so I had grown up with all kinds of stories of Goldwater and, and uh, throughout high school debate and really throughout my early years at college, I, I read all kinds of Mises and Hazlitt and Hayek, really everything I could get my hands on. I had not read much cultural conservative until 1989. And that's when I think I got from ISI, if I remember correctly, I was given a hardback copy of the seventh revised edition of The Conservative Mind. And I read that the fall of my senior year of college, which was actually the exact same time that the Berlin Wall was coming down. So I, this was the fall of 1989. And I was just... I'd never really encountered these kind of cultural criticisms before. And I, I have to admit, even though I, I remained a libertarian, I very much fell in love with Kirk and just started reading everything that I could about him and did so over the next several decades until about 2009, maybe 2010. Annette Kirk, Russell's widow, called me and asked me if I'd like to, to write a bio of her husband. <laughs> so I did. I took basically five years and wrote that. It was one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, I've had a great relationship with Kirk. I never actually met him, though. Uh, hmm. So uh, everything I know about him is in the abstract. When you say fulfilling, you mean dreadful experience, right? Writing a bio? <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. Yes. No, it was it was great, actually. Um, I mean, it, I, I've never encountered anyone who wrote so much. Uh, he just the guy never stopped writing. And he was he was an eccentric, fun personality. Uh, he never there was never a dryness to him. Even if I ever got kind of tired of one topic with Kirk, something else would arise that would make him just as interesting as he had been moments before. So I, I never got tired of it. Is The Conservative Mind written, I believe, 53, thereabouts? Is that a worthwhile read? I, I personally have not read it. 
It is definitely worth reading. It's, I think probably a lot of people go into it, especially a lot of young conservatives go into it, thinking that they're going to come out with a, a program for conservatism and learn what it means to be a young Republican. But it's really more of a biographical and poetical look at different strains of thought that should be conserved in the Western tradition and especially in the Anglo-American tradition. So yeah, it's, it's definitely worth reading. It's beautifully written. Uh, just, it's a beautiful book. So you have written an article, pretty lengthy actually, titled Kirk and the Libertarians, and we're going to link to that in the show notes. But give us a little bit of the context. Kirk writes this, what I'm going to call a broadside against libertarians in 1981. Where is he in his life and his writing and his thinking there? And what is his relationships with libertarians? Well, this is right at the beginning of Reagan's first administration. And so Kirk is in the middle of a fight He'll soon be fighting with the neocons, too, but he's in the middle of a fight between the traditionalist conservatives and the libertarians, each trying to lay claim to Reagan and wanting to be basically the dominant camp within the Reagan administration and within the Reagan years. Now, that that fight will become one, as I said, between basically the, the traditionalists and the neocons in a little bit, but not quite yet. So 1981, you've got this conflict within whatever we want to call them, the anti-left, those who are not on the left, and they're trying to figure out a lot of this. Kirk is, I think, I mean, yeah, Jeff, we may disagree on this, but I, I think Kirk is a little unfair in his arguments. And it's clear he was in a very bad mood when he wrote this. <laughs> I can tell that just having read so much Kirk, I can tell by his writing style that he was definitely in a mood when he was writing this, um, a, a very cranky mood. But he had had kind of a love-hate relationship with libertarianism all the way back through his own college years. And you know his, his first book, John Randolph of Roanoke, was very proudly about a libertarian, one that Kirk loved and admired. And he called him a libertarian in the book. That wasn't just a, uh, a term that we put on later in hindsight, but that's exactly what he calls him. And so there was that kind of love relationship there. And Kirk had also corresponded uh, very seriously with Albert J. Nock and with Isabel Patterson during World War II and had been deeply influenced by both of them but then kind of fell out with, Nock passed away in 45, but then he kind of fell out with Patterson. And I do think a lot of Kirk's relationship with libertarianism tends to be very personal. And not only does he fall out with Patterson, but then he starts challenging Hayek very openly. And of course, they have a very famous debate in 1957 at the Mount Pelerin Society, in which Hayek comes out with his why I am not a conservative. And I think even though this is a this piece that we're talking about today didn't come out until 1981, I think it's Kirk's attempt to answer Hayek, even though several decades later. Well, I think it's important for people to read critiques like this. I The crankiness is part of it. And the interpersonal is part of it. We still see this today. There are huge divisions uh, between the Mises Institute people and the Cato people and the, you know, the conservative. So, you know, you have the National Review people and the Claremont people. And, and then what I, you know, more to my taste, sort of the, the modern age ISI people. So this is, this is part and parcel of intellectual movements, this idea that we should somehow get beyond this. You know, you wrote a bio of Kirk that lets you know the man. I, I mean, Mises' bio written by Guido Holzman, that brings those ideas so much more to life to me. I, in other words, this is a valid criticism of libertarians, I think, which, which is that we are uh, 
heads without bodies, just about the ideas, when ideas are nothing without people to promulgate them. Right. Well put. So rereading this essay the other night, I, one thing that comes out, leaps out, is that he is is basically saying, as conservatives, we are not radicals. We view the world and the governance required in that world with an eye towards comporting with human nature and the human condition. And that libertarianism is is averse to that because it's utopian. That's that's sort of the big overall takeaway I get. Yeah, I would agree, Jeff. And it, there's no doubt that Kirk, from his earliest writings, is deeply concerned with anything that's ideological. And so the, he, he always argued that conservatism itself was an anti-ideology in and of itself, right? It was anti-ideological, that if you ever found someone who tried to create an ideology out of conservatism, they were perverting it uh, and in fact, destroying it, uh, not just perverting it, but destroying it from within. And so I think he saw a lot of libertarianism, at least in the way that he's interpreting it. He does see it as this attempt to ideologize uh, certain ideas. And that that's the utopian aspect that Kirk rejects so strongly. Do you think anything in this essay, particularly his somewhat snide comment about libertarians would leave us totally defenseless against the Soviet bear? Right. Uh, was any of this aimed at Rothbard? I would assume a lot of it was. Right? I remember Rothbard, of course, had been arguing that all revolutions were good in the 1970s. <laughs> and yeah, that that would be the kind of thing that would just drive Kirk crazy. And there had always been that that tension within National Review, too, even at the very beginning when Rothbard was writing for National Review. Uh, there had been that tension between Buckley and Rothbard. But, you know, Buckley, of course, called himself a libertarian, too. And there's that tension there between Kirk and, and Buckley as well over all of this. And then you throw in other figures. I mean, Frank Meyer kind of looms over all of this as well. So I think Rothbard is certainly, I, if, if you pin me down, Jeff, and said, name exactly who Kirk is attacking here, I would say it's about 50% Meyer and about 50% Rothbard. Yeah. And that brings to mind a show we did here a few weeks ago. I think it was Left and Right Prospects for Liberty, where there's a couple little points at which Rothbard sort of gently uh, praises the French Revolution. And I felt almost like I was at the dentist where you get that little twinge in your tooth when they, they're a little too close to the root. Um, but but it, that's okay because people write lots of things over many decades. And I think, you know, it's okay to disagree with that. I would consider the French Revolution an absolute disaster for humanity. Yeah, I um, would too. I, it's kind of the, the beginning of the end, right? <laughs> in so many but ways. There's... I don't think we can address this essay without understanding the role of religion in conservatism. And I personally think that religion's a huge blind spot for libertarians. And I think that your typical, let's say, Reason Magazine reader doesn't understand just how uh, nasty and tribal secular America is going to be. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a lot of truth in that. And Kirk, of course was very devout Roman Catholic and, well, devout in his thought, not always in his practice, but was certainly very in line with the Roman Catholic Church, uh, converted to it in 1964 and really maintained, I think, that intellectual 
allegiance to it throughout his life, uh, fell in love with John Paul II and so forth. And he really was quite taken with it. And so I think that Kirk is always suspicious, just as the French Revolution was an attack on religion. I think any ideology is an attempt for Kirk, at least as he sees it, to create a kind of secular counter-religion. And that, and he's, he's very worried about that without question. Well, since 1981 and the Reagan administration and all the challenges we've seen in the West since then, was he right about his ideology dead? Oh, it's most definitely not dead. Uh, you know, I think it's it's been bruised and, and beaten quite a bit, especially with the fall of the Soviet Union. But I think it's it's on the rise right now in terms of the way people tribalize on on social media and just looking at everything that happened last year with the Black Lives Matter movement and all the radicalism that we saw throughout 2020. I, mean, I think nobody calls it really ideology anymore, but the kinds of things that Kirk was worried about is what an ideology is. Certainly we're playing a role. I mean, when, the, when you have protesters putting out guillotines as a form of their <laughs> protest, I mean, clearly they're making an ideological statement there. So yeah, I don't think ideology is gone at all. In fact, I think it's on the rebound right now, but maybe it's taking different forms, forms that weren't as cut and dried during Kirk's era. I think now they're a little messier than they were then. Yeah. I don't want to be Jeff Bezos and look up my curtains exactly and see people in uh, some tony part of northwest washington dc with a, a exactly. plastic guillotine out there no but, wonder he went to space yeah <laughs> he's trying to yeah. get away <laughs> i i wonder about this little diversion i i thought it was a bit of a diversion which kirk takes uh going into john stuart mill here and mm. and mill's critic uh james Fitzjames Stephen. I thought that was really interesting because Mills on Liberty really stands out to me from undergrad. The very simple principle, I still have my old copy of that somewhere right. with highlighter saying, you know, the only reason you should ever constrain someone is is harm to others. You know, the individual's allowed to harm themselves. Sure. And, and boy, Kirk really hates this. He does. And he creates, I think it's fair to say that Kirk creates in his own mind a kind of demonology. So whereas he's got this pantheon of heroes and saints and demigods with the conservative mind, taking it all the way from Edmund Burke up to T.S. Eliot, I think in his own mind, though, he never made it explicit. I think there was a kind of counter to that, an anti-conservative mind or a demonology, uh, which began with John Locke and then went through Jeremy Bentham and then John Stuart Mill. And Kirk's not sure what to do with people in the modern age like Hayek. Uh, he's just I mean, he respects Hayek, admires him in certain ways, but he also really wants to challenge him and believes that Hayek in too many ways is very similar to Mill, uh, not only in the way that he lived his personal life, but in his very ideas as well. So that demonology for him continues for a very long time. Interesting, Kirk doesn't write about Mises very much. Uh, hardly at all, in fact. And I, I'm, I've wondered about why that's the case. Because Mises, of course, would have been a very prominent figure when Kirk was rising. But for whatever reason, Kirk really focused on challenging Hayek. Hayek was about 20 years older, uh, maybe a little more than that, but it was a generation older. It was kind of the leader of the non-left and Kirk just went after him uh, somewhat viciously at times in the 1950s and into the 1960s. Yeah, and talking about Mill, two things which which I noted here was that he's attacking libertarianism not only as simplistic, 
but as universalist. And universalism is the opposite of sort of tradition and custom and localism exactly. and this sort of cautious uh, uh, discovery of how things ought to be, which which Kirk, I guess, would view as as the role of common law. Absolutely. Common law is always the answer for Kirk in terms of trying to understand what tradition would be. Yeah, absolutely. But then again, you look at someone like Hayek. Hayek clearly believed in common law, too. Hayek also liked Burke. there, There are more similarities than there are differences between the two, I think, in all kinds of ways, though Hayek, of course, on religion was very different than Kirk was. Yeah, but you know, you have to read Hayek here, here and there. He said some things about tradition and custom, which might surprise even some of his fans. And and I I wonder, yeah, especially in the Fatal Conceit. Right? Yeah, in the Fatal Conceit, which I guess is what nineteen ninety two, I think ninety two, right before he dies, which right. of course was was co written, and that a, a lot of uh, oh, a I didn't lot of, know there's that. a lot of yeah that that his uh, co writer had a lot to do with that. We don't know, but. Here's the thing that's a little puzzling for me is that, you know, Hayek is in in large part arguing against hubris, and in, in central planning or oh, otherwise, absolutely. and and yet Kirk is saying there's a lot of hubris in libertarianism. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a tension for Kirk, and I think that's part of that. His both respecting and disagreeing with Hayek, I think it's all wrapped up into that. So yeah, we don't have records, but uh, I mean, we have a few quotes from this. But from the few things that I've read, the debate that they had in 1957 with one another was a pretty challenging debate. And I think both sides were kind of surprised by what the challenge really led to. And I I do think that probably that debate was seminal in a history of conservative libertarianism, uh, conservatism and libertarianism, I think pretty important. And I'm sorry, we don't have records from that. But that is where Hayek's Why I'm Not a Conservative comes from. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that a uh, Mount Pelerin Society gathering in 2022 is likely to be a little less erudite. No offense. I, you but know, I, would, I can't even speak to that. So I'll just, I'll <laughs> I, agree to go, I have no idea, would, but it, it clearly looked pretty serious back in 57 from what I've seen. Yeah. Boy, and we need that sort of thing. I wish we could have, I don't know, some world of intellectual salons which weren't as jaundiced and poisoned as everything seems to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Philadelphia Society seemed to have yes. for a while. And yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. But there's this great um, line here uh, where he says that, you know, he's talking about libertarians are childish and they want to be not only emancipated from the state, but really all social convention and strictures and modes of behavior and expectations and this and that. And that's a common refrain, a common criticism. And it's one which I have shared. Um, you know, he, he says here, and I'm quoting Kirk, the final emancipation from religion, convention, custom and order is annihilation. Uh, you know, he talks about fractured atoms, this idea that libertarians are these deracinated atomistic individuals. And so I gave sort of a tongue in cheek speech a few years ago called For a New Libertarian, which was an allusion uh, to Rothbard's For a New Liberty. And I said some things you're not supposed to say, like, hey, let's say there's 30 million of us, 10% of the population. What if we all had three kids? That'd be 90 million. <laughs> then we'd be getting somewhere, you know. And uh, I think that know, sounds I, totally legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As someone I mean, I, who has you know, seven kids, I'm all in favor of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm an English major, but I can multiply 30 times three. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I caught a lot of grief for that. But really, there there is this tension. I mean, 
I think thin libertarianism is dead. I think both left and right libertarians have abandoned it. Mm. Yeah. Well, I want to walk through these six. He has six numbered points in this essay. And, and uh, I, you know, he starts to repeat himself. I think there is, I think he was cranky, but uh, his first point is that the, you know, if we look at the, at human evolution and human history, it's, it, the, the dichotomy is not authority versus liberty, because if that's your only way of viewing humanity, then, you know, nothing's transcendent and man becomes this sort of pure commercial transactional homo economicus. So let's let's start with point one here. You know, Jeff, I'm going to have to look at at point one, thinking about this idea of homo economicus. This was for Kirk, of course. Uh, this was a, a a major factor for his understanding of what the conservative mind was, and trying to figure out specifically how do we define the human person. So I think Kirk here, at least in trying to go over these again, is really trying to trying trying to redefine what a conservative is in many ways, as opposed to what a libertarian is. So he's not just talking about libertarianism. Uh, but certainly about conservatism there as well. So what what is your take on it? Well, you know, I hear that a lot. Um, and what's what's transcendence? In other words, what's right, a higher right. moral order or moral being? Um, maybe he's just viewing libertarians as mostly atheists or agnostics. Maybe right. that's what's at work here. It may be. But yeah, he has this argument, which was a pretty typical Christian humanist argument at the time. Uh, and, and Eric Vogelin, though not a Christian humanist, was certainly an ally. But you see this in Jacques Maritain and Ethne Gilson. Kirk, certainly on the American side, that the real struggle is not left and right, but up and down. That is, you either believe in something transcendent or you don't. And yeah, Solzhenitsyn said the same thing. I mean, this is, I think, a fairly common argument. Uh, whether that's fair to put onto libertarians or not, I'm not sure. But it was definitely a, a strong argument uh, coming out of, especially out of World War II and the left-right divide, trying to transcend that. Christopher Dawson went so far as to argue that the left-right divide was purely a facade made up by the left in order to divide. <laughs> that it existed for the sole purpose of actually dividing people one from another, uh, but there was no real reality other than that contrived reality of it. And I think that's what Kirk is trying to get at there. Right. And he, he follows up by saying, look, liberty is such is just not this abstraction. It order precedes liberty. And when you make almost a god of liberty, personal liberty, um you're not going to have much of a society if things are disordered. Yes. And uh, here again, so on point number two, uh, where we have this order is the first need of all. I think that that Kirk, I think that he uses order in the way most of us in a philosophy class would use justice, that is to give each his due. And I, I think that's what Kirk is trying to say here, that we would never know the natural rights of a person. We wouldn't know their right place in the order of things unless we understood the order of the thing itself. So liberty does matter for Kirk. I mean, there's no question that he believes in liberty, but he believes that it's a subset of justice, that it's not something that transcends justice, but is a subset of it. Mm-hmm. And that, that's where I think, you know, Kirk and Burke both believed in natural rights, but they don't believe in natural rights in the way Jefferson did. They weren't these abstracted things. They were things that were definitely rooted within a construct of justice. Well, that's so 
interesting to me because there's this constant battle between the universalist, we could say today, globalist, neoliberal versus the nationalist or localist. And there, there's also this idea between the particular and the abstract. Sure. I mean, is if you read Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty, America was a place born out of you know particular people at a particular time with particular interests on particular dirt. Exactly. And, and, and self-interest, by the way. And you could say, oh my gosh, that's revisionist, boulderized history. That might as well be Rothbard's version of Howard Zinn. And if you go read National Review, it's like, well, America was an idea and anybody can join it and you can just as easily have America and Singapore. You know, I mean, this, right. it, it's as much as we don't like it, perhaps, th this stuff filters down into libertarianism. You can't just escape this sort of... Mm. I guess, cultural left and right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very, very well put. Uh, I always think about when, you know, George Washington always talked about our country and it was always capital C when he talked about our country. And it's interesting. I mean, what, what does he mean by that? Is he actually talking about Virginian soil or is he talking about an idea? And I think there is that kind of inherent tension within the founding itself. Well, this question of what binds us together, right? Point uh, three. That's that's a tough one because right now, look at just the Olympics. People, oh my God. Some people are, are some people are cheering against the Americans. <laughs> I mean, where yeah. where the hell are we? Exactly, exactly. It's pretty amazing. I mean, Dinesh D'Souza has been all over Twitter praising America for failing. Right? That this is what mm. should be going on right now. Yeah, it's very mm -hmm. interesting. I don't I don't have a thought on that except I'm fascinated by it. Well, I'll tell you what Ilana Mercer says. She says America is Walmart with nukes. Oh, my gosh. So what's – in other words, what binds us – a truly us, horrifying thought. Yeah, right. But what binds us together is whether we like it or not, we're yoked under what I would consider a very abusive uh, father in Washington, D.C. But then beyond that, we have this sort of commercial nexus where we enjoy the dollar's reserve status and so we buy lots of cheap trinkets – and that, you know, we, we're hollowed out as a people. There's not much intellectualism. There's not a, a real strong heartbeat there. Whereas, let's say the Russians, although they may be dissolute and poorer than us, you know, somewhere there's still sort of a Russian-ness right. underneath them. So right. this, the, I guess this is, this is the question, are, right. you know, are, are, is, is the market nexus enough. And I think towards the end of his life, Rothbard tried to say no. Right. I think that from what I know of Rothbard, that sounds exactly right. And of course, Kirk fought against that his whole career, that idea. In fact, he uh, has this very famous statement in his book following up from the conservative mind called A Program for Conservatives, in which he says, you know, the plan of the capitalists, the socialists, and the communists is all alike. It's a materialist plan that has no idea about the human soul or what the soul calls towards. So, yeah. Well, but your, and your that comment, your comment, Walmart with nukes, <laughs> that's just terrifying. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, I got to credit a lot of Mercer. You know, for that have you ever seen um, the movie Harrison Burgenon from the, yes. the short story? <laughs> I mean, that's essentially yeah. what that is, isn't it? We're this consumerist society with nukes. So, oh, well, so his next point um, almost brings up the idea of the blank slate from your perspective. Are libertarians blank slaters? 
You know, uh, from the Lockean perspective, absolutely. But when I think of someone like Tom Woods or you, no, not at all. Uh, I mean, most libertarians I know are extremely pessimistic about human nature. One of the reasons that they're libertarian is because they don't believe that you should allow human nature in and of itself to flourish completely, because at that point you have tyranny, right? You've got the ego control of everything. So we want to decentralize. So I, I personally, I think Kirk is just exaggerating on this one. And I think it's an unfortunate exaggeration. Well, I think point five is his weakest here. He, he basically brings up Hobbes' state of nature. Uh, so a state is necessary. But of mm. course, the rejoinder that based on what you just said is, well, if humans are so fallible, why do we want to weaponize that exactly. in a strong central government? But, um, I, you know, number six, I, I guess I liked because... Well, I, I dislike hubris above all. In other words, the reason we ought to be libertarian as an adjective, maybe not as a noun, is that we, we have to be cautious and let markets and civil society sort of figure things out as they go along. We ought not to have these grandiose views of the state and what it can accomplish. Um, so, you know, number six, he seems to be saying, well, look, you're not the special snowflake you imagine, um, and and the, the you know the the cosmos is about cooperation, not uh, your status as an emperor. Yes, I think that's I think there's a lot of truth in that. I that is so Kirk though to say the swaggering ego. It just it, I can again though I never met him, I can hear him saying that uh, with derision. And I, I think really here he's conflating as well. Uh, and you could speak to this better on the libertarian side than I could, but he seems to be conflating a kind of really exaggerated individualism with libertarianism. This seems to be an attack more on the kind of Ayn Rand vision of what society is than it is against the libertarian vision of what society is. Yeah. Um, I do like he, he lets us leave with this little zinger. He says the socialists at least declare the existence of some sort of moral order. The libertarians are quite bottomless. Yes, bottomless. <laughs> um, but this is the kind of writing we need today. This is the kind of, you know, whether you agree or disagree, is, uh, this is the kind of stuff we ought to be discussing. And, and I wonder, you know, if we could go back, he, I, I guess he's arguing against fusionism, that, you know, which is starting to take new shape in, during the Reagan era. So, but, but if there were to be a fusionism, let's say, in Kirk's world or in, in Brad Berzer's world, I mean, what would be the legs of the stool? Is this sort of thing possible today? A fusionism? Um, yes. Yeah, I think, but I'm also, I'm, I, I think it's really important that all of us on the right, especially, uh, you know, if we want to use those terms, but all of us who are not leftists, I mean, we've got to figure out how to get along with one another. And you're right, as you said about 30 minutes ago, an intellectual movement really demands a kind of give and take. But but there also has to be the give. I mean, not just the take, but the give as well. And we have to be able to figure out at what point can we compromise on this or that point and still keep our own kind of cherished values, but move forward. And I, I think, I, mean, I like Frank Meyer. When I've read Frank Meyer, I think he makes a lot of sense. And I think there have been uh, I don't think we ever would have had, for example, the Goldwater or the Reagan movements without some kind of compromise. And of course, in both of those cases, you have strong personalities, Goldwater and Reagan, who were able to bring those things together. But, you know, th it, this is great for me, Jeff, to talk about this um, and to hear your views on this, because 
I, when you asked me to do this, of course, I was excited to do a podcast with you. And then you suggested, let's do it on this piece. <laughs> and for me, yeah, as much as I love Kirk, and I do love Kirk, and I, I'd be happy to write another book about Kirk, uh, I, I, I could spend much, much more time with him. This is the most awkward piece that he wrote in my mind. And to hear you as one of the great leaders of one of the great libertarian institutions praise it, at least acknowledge where it's right, is really good for my soul. I mean, in a sense, I think we're, we found a kind of fusionism, fusionism just in our conversation here. Uh, because when I reread it the other night, I, I was turning red. I mean, it's just like, I can't believe Kirk said this. I can't believe Kirk said this. I can't believe Kirk said this. Um, you know, because partly I also want us to get along, not you and me in particular, but those of us on the, on the right as a whole, I want us to get along. And I also, again, because I know when Kirk's being cranky, uh, I can see that. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you like this. This is not the way I was expecting this conversation to go at all uh, in any way, shape or form. So this has been a much, much healthier conversation than I was thinking it might be. Well, I'm, I want to recommend this essay to people. You got a little bit of time this weekend. We'll, we're going to post a link. Again, it, it's called Libertarians, the Chirping Sectories, written by Russell Kirk. Actually, in the fall uh, issue of Modern Age, which I still get today. Yeah, so do I. In 1981, I still like a print publication. It I do too. My house. Absolutely. We're showing our age. Um, <laughs> but I'm also going to provide some links. Uh, Murray Rothbard gave a talk in 1979. So, which predates this a bit, called Myth and Truth About Libertarianism, which I think addresses some of the points Kirk makes. I'm going to link to Dr. Berzer's piece, Kirk and the Libertarians. I'm also going to link to uh, Jacob Hornberger article at the Future of Freedom Foundation, which he penned, I believe, in 1990, called An Open Letter to Russell Kirk, responding to this essay and also bringing up his own uh, religiosity, which I thought was a very nice touch to say, you know, um, this is what what uh, my relationship with Christ means to me on the in the moral plane, and why without choice morality is meaningless, and that and and, and so forth. But Brad, before I let you go, uh, how can people keep up with you? Uh, tell us about your website and uh, and where they might uh, you know find your biography of Kirk and other writings you've done. Oh, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, well, you know, I, I do a lot with Tom Woods. So I'm on Liberty Classroom and uh, I love working with Tom. Uh, but I also, my main website is one that's now 11 years old called theimaginativeconservative.org. And so the Imaginative Conservative, and I publish there once a week, but we've got all kinds of authors there. I'm, I'm by far the most libertarian of the authors, uh, but we generally, I would say, I mean, we call ourselves imaginative conservatives, but we're really kind of Christian humanist in the way that Christopher Dawson and uh, Russell Kirk and Jacques Maritain, uh, Willa Cather, others were. So uh, a strain of old right. I mean, we love Nock, for example. Nock's one of our huge, huge benefactors in terms of intellectual uh, ideas, uh, certainly. So there, there's a lot there. And I've published there on some other figures, some uh, pretty straightforward libertarian figures as well. But yeah, that's, that's where I mean, if people want to find me. That's probably both Liberty Classroom and the Imaginative Conservative. So thanks for asking that. Well, Dr. Bradley Berzer, I want to thank you for your time. Well, thank you, Jeff. It was fun. I want to ask every, everyone in our audience to have a great weekend. We'll hear from you next week. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.